Lady Jane Grey was 16 years old when she was made Queen of England. She was made Queen of England by the 15-year-old uh, dying uh, King Edward VI. That was her cousin once removed. Edward uh, did not want his half-sister Mary to become queen, which would have happened if the normal line of succession had taken place. Edward was a Protestant. Mary was a Catholic. And so to bypass this chain, he appointed Jane Grey, his cousin once removed, to be queen. So bypassing the normal line of succession, which was not normal, and nobody, very few people viewed this as legitimate. And she herself really didn't even want this. Uh, nevertheless, he appointed her, made her successor. Well, her reign only lasted for nine days. Nine days before Mary I was proclaimed queen and Jane Grey was put in prison and convicted of high treason. This Mary I, uh, we probably more likely to know her by the name Bloody Mary. She gets that name for her ruthless assault on Protestantism in her efforts to return England to Catholicism. There's a record of an exchange between Jane and uh, the Catholic archbishop that Mary sent to her in prison. This was about four days, I believe it was four days before uh, Jane Grey was to be executed. And this archbishop went in essentially to try her and to convince her uh, of the error of her Protestant ways. However, Jane... Now all of 17 years old, barely, she vigorously and very capably defended justification by faith, defended her Protestant biblical convictions. In fact, she takes it to this Catholic archbishop who accuses her of believing merely the words of men. And then she takes him to task to show why it is that her doctrine is actually from the scriptures and his is not, and the Catholic Church's is not. He didn't perhaps know this, but she was, by the age of 14, fluent in Greek, knew her Greek very well, and was starting to learn Hebrew. And so she knew her scriptures very, very well, and she took him, she took him to task. It's a fascinating uh, read. So when it came time for her execution, she marched out of the Tower of London to be executed, and she gave a small speech declaring that she was dying as a Christian woman, and she had a man uh, at her request read Psalm 51, and this man was so moved by what was happening and by the testimony of Jane that he couldn't even finish. He was in tears. So she picked it up, and she finished reading Psalm 51. And then as she very calmly went to her execution, even talking to the man who was about to perform the act, as she came time to, to die, she said the words of Christ. She prayed to the Lord and said, Into your hands I commit my spirit. And there she was executed. She went to her death confident in her Savior. She had a prayer book and a Bible. Those are the two things she had as she was imprisoned. 
And inside of her prayer book, she wrote on it, quote, Though my body will be slain for my sins, my soul will be justified before God, and posterity will show me favor. One of the things that her story shows us is that the Protestant Reformation and the doctrines that the Reformation recovered, especially justification by faith, which is at the very heart of the biblical gospel, that this Reformation was not merely about theology for theology's sake. This wasn't just a theological argument, nor was this merely about power and governments. There were kings that identified as Protestant and others as Catholic, and certainly there were clashes. But that's not primarily what this was about, or it's not what concerned the Reformers. It was about the great matters of life and death, and how we as sinners might be made right with this great and holy God. And the truths recovered in the Reformation brought people like Lady Jane Grey, a 16-year-old, just turned 17, confidence, confidence in the face of overwhelming and in some ways unthinkable trial, namely her, her death, her execution for her beliefs. Where do you turn for comfort when life becomes hard? When life is difficult, when it's confusing, to whom or to what do you turn? The Thessalonians, as we've seen, had been upset by false teaching about the end times, about when the Lord comes and what it what it would look like and in, in, in how this affects their standing with the Lord. And this report had come that the day was already upon them. And, 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 and we saw back in chapter 2, verse 2, Paul's calling them not to be quickly alarmed or thrown off by this. And so he then goes on to remind them of some of the truth that they had previously known and previously had been taught by him. Namely, as we saw that uh, there's a couple things that need to happen before uh, the day of the Lord would come. Namely, the rebellion, a great apostasy would have to come. The man of lawlessness as well would also need to be revealed first. And so, therefore, this day uh, had not yet come. It was not yet upon them. And then, starting in verse 13, Paul begins to express confidence in their salvation as a means of comforting them. He's pointing them back to their salvation. And he's contrasting this with those in verses 10 through 12 that we saw who did not believe the truth and who were going to be judged when the Lord Jesus returns. They're going to receive a judgment. And yet, now in verse 13, he's, he's, turning, he's, he's expressing confidence in their salvation. And he's pointing them back to having confidence in their Lord who saves. And so whether the concern is about the Lord's return, the end times, how this is all going to play out, or whether it's any number of other issues, life is full of reasons that we might become unsettled and shaken. It could be news about our health. It could be just looking at the world around us and seeing the trajectory and being concerned about what this means, what this is going to look like in 10, 15, 20 years or more or less. Concern about this world we live in. 
It could be a work-related issue. It could be relationship-related. It could be physical. It could be spiritual. It could be both of those things. It could be something that troubles your soul regularly that currently unsettles you now. And as we turn again to 2 Thessalonians 2, we'll see that Paul's desire, and by extension the Lord's desire for us, is that we not be easily shaken. And the immediate context is the end times. But this also applies to anything. That we're not to be those who are easily rattled by anything that comes our way. But rather, we are to be confident in the Lord's salvation. Confident in the Lord's salvation. And so as we continue to look at a faithful church, this is part two of a faithful church takes confidence in the Lord's salvation. And last week we looked at the first point. There was four points. We're going to look at the other three today. And so last week we looked at number one, which is we are to take confidence in the Lord's salvation by finding comfort in election. And so we looked at verses 13 and 14 of 2 Thessalonians 2, and I'll invite you to turn there now if you're not already there. And we're going to read those verses again. So read with me 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 to 14. Paul writes, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so last week we talked about how the Bible's teaching on election, which we see here, he's giving thanks that God chose them as first fruits to be saved. We talked, if you'll recall, about um, this word calling, God called them. This is God's action in saving people and choosing them before the foundations of the earth. And we talked about how this is a doctrine that's not primarily something that is to be argued about or debated about. It's, it, part of its aim is to provide comfort for us, for believers, that our salvation, that your salvation, if you're trusting in Christ, doesn't ultimately rest on you and your actions, but rather... In the grace and power of God. And again, he's contrasting their salvation, the Thessalonian salvation, those who have faith in the truth, with those, in verses 10 to 11, who refuse to love the truth, and, and therefore, as a result of that, who then receive judgment. And so he's pointing them back to their calling and their election by God as a source of comfort as they are troubled by the end. He turns their attention back to God's work of salvation. And so we, too, are to take confidence in the Lord's salvation by finding comfort in election. Number two, and our first point for today, the new, or new point, is that taking conf- to take confidence in the Lord's salvation, we are to do that by finding comfort in the end goal of salvation. Finding comfort in in the end goal of salvation. So look again at verse 14 and notice the ultimate goal or the ultimate purpose of our salvation, of, their, of, of our calling. As he writes to Thessalonians, Paul says, to this, that is to their salvation, he called you through our gospel, we looked at that last week, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
So the glory we obtain is said here to be the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is referring to what happens at the end when we are given new, perfected, glorified, resurrected bodies that will be in the likeness of Jesus Christ, our Savior. So, for example, Romans 8.29 says this, For those whom he foreknew, God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that Jesus, he, might be the firstborn among many brothers. So Jesus is the first, and he's the greatest of many brothers. He's the firstborn of many brothers to come after him who will be conformed into the image of Christ, into his image. And so this ultimately takes place at the end when he returns, which is frequently throughout Scripture explained and used. Uh, the adjective used for that is a return in glory. So, for example, I just read uh, Romans 8.29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Verse 30 says this, And those whom he predestined, he also called. That's that inward calling we talked about last week. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So there's that adjective talking about the end. So the end goal or the end result of salvation is that we are, we are going to be made, those who are trusting in Christ, who've been called by God, going to be made perfectly into the image of Christ. And that's what it means that we are going to obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are going to be made just like him into his image. Now, this doesn't mean that we ourselves are going to be gods. It doesn't mean that we are completely in every way equal to Jesus Christ. He forever, in eternity past and eternity into the future, is the second person of the Trinity, eternally worthy of worship. We will never be worthy of worship. We are not exactly the same in that way, but we are going to be like him and in his image. And he is the firstborn of many others who will come after him. That refers to those of us who believe. And the Bible uses very exalted language to describe this. So again, in Romans 8, verse 17, it talks about how we are going to be fellow heirs or co-heirs with Christ. That's significant language, fellow. There's language of equality there. And of course, again, we're not... Exactly equal. But my point is that is exalted language of our final state. We're fellow heirs with Christ. Because, because of our union with him being joined to him, we will share in his glory when he returns in glory. And this is our great inheritance. It's the end goal of our salvation. So Paul is pointing the Thessalonians by extension, us, to the end goal of our calling. When we obtain the glory of Christ and are with Him forever in the new heavens and new earth. It's so very easy for us to lose sight of our eternal inheritance and to get stuck on the here and now. 
And this scripture, this text, is helping us to rather view the here and now in light of where this is all headed, in light of the end goal and and ultimate purpose of our salvation, to understand and evaluate our present circumstances in, in and through the lens of eternity and where this is all headed. Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, said this, and this is, in, this is after, he's commenting um, in a letter after a, a, a good church service in which things were good and people seemed to be encouraged and convicted of sin and the Lord seemed honored. He, says, he said, but oh, how far short do we fall of Paul's description of the Christian? If only we knew more about and meditated more upon the glory that awaits us. Pointing to the end. And meditating on the end. Eternal salvation brings about many wonderful fruits and benefits in this life. There is joy, most certainly, to be known right now in salvation. There is present fellowship with God himself and fellow believers. There's the joy of a clear conscience of being justified before God. But we also need to be reminded that salvation is not simply about improvements here and now. The coming glory is not just a bonus. It's the point. It's where this is all headed. It's the end goal of our salvation. It's where all of history is going and is going to culminate in the glorious return of Christ. So we need to uh, recover the fact that the whole Bible is, in a sense, eschatological. That is, what I mean by that is that all of it is pointing to the end. So eschatology is not merely... Um, just debates about a millennium and relegated to what happens in Revelation, the whole of the Bible is pointing to the end. So we would, to maybe try and help explain that, we, we would, I think all, we should all, agree and say that the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus, ultimately. It's pointing to the coming of Christ. But it doesn't just point to the things that Jesus accomplished in his first coming. It's also pointing to what he's going to accomplish when he comes at the end, on the great day of the Lord, when he makes all things new, and when he ultimately destroys sin and death, and when he reigns eternally, forever, in the new heavens and new earth, and his people will be with him. The Bible tells the story of God's redemption, all of which points to that day. And we, as his people now, get to anticipate our sharing in that great day. The promise of Genesis 3.15 that there would be a seed of the woman to crush the serpent's head, the very first proclamation of the gospel, ultimately the promise that there would be a savior to come and crush Satan himself, ultimately comes to pass will come to pass when Christ returns and destroys him. 
And so it begins when Jesus comes in his first coming. Certainly, he delivers the decisive blow to Satan. He is able to redeem people for himself based on his work at the cross. But final and, comp- and, and the finality of all things, the consummation of everything, will be at the end. And we read about that in Revelation 21 a little bit earlier. And so until that day, we march now in the blessings now of being completely justified by grace through faith before God, being forgiven of our sins. But we march now looking ahead to that day, to the end goal of our salvation, when, as Paul says it, we will obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Revelation 21, which I read earlier A couple of things there, just to help us understand, what is this glory? Certainly, well, I'm just going to read a few more things from this, which we read earlier. But John is getting this vision of this new heaven, new earth, descending. And a loud voice from the throne calls out to him in verse 3, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and he will be They they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That's the the crux of it, of this glory we will obtain and receive will be perfected, and we will be with him. Our dwelling place will be with him. And the new Jerusalem that goes on to be explained in Revelation 20, it's it's a cube in shape, if you follow the shape, as was the Holy of Holies, the most holy place where Moses would meet with God, where the high priest would go in and meet with the Lord and find uh, forgiveness, find a, to make atonement for the, the, the people of God. And so this is a return. This is a doing away with the curtain. And God is now dwelling with his people. There is no veil. Uh, we will see him face to face. We will be with him. It says he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. And that's where our salvation is headed. That's where we are headed at the end. And one of the great blessings, I think, of our time in Thessalonian letters is that Paul keeps pointing to this. They're wrestling with issues about the end, and and this keeps coming to our attention. And we get to keep considering over and over uh, that there will be a final resurrection. And now, as Paul's talking and, and reminding us, we will obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it keeps our eyes on Christ's return and the end goal of salvation. So, friends, let us find comfort in this. Let's let us be confident that we indeed have. A beautiful inheritance that's being kept for us now until we are able to, until we acquire possession of it. 
Be confident, be comforted that salvation is salvation to final glory. Those whom God calls now and saves now, He will keep to the end. And the end is obtaining the glory of Christ. Be comforted by this. There's a number of places in Scripture where um, eternal glory and, and participating in this eternal glory is clearly meant to bring us comfort. And, and, and I'll just name one other, Romans 8, 17 and 18, where Paul says, fellow believers are fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So do you see there the relationship between future glory and present comfort? And so what is the thing that worries you? What is it that shakes you, that, that troubles you in this life? Remember, remember the calling to which you've been called is ultimately to obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. You can endure trial now. You can continue fighting sin. You can go through difficulties and dark valleys as long as they might be and as long as they might seem. Press on because there's future glory that awaits. You need not be easily shaken by fears. Fight your worries and your fears with these great truths. Take confidence in the Lord's salvation by finding comfort in the end goal of your salvation. The third thing, take confidence in the Lord's salvation by standing firm in biblical truth. Let's read verse 15. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us either by our spoken word or by our letter. Paul makes an inference here from what he's just said about God's salvation. He says, so then. So as a result of being called by God to salvation, a salvation that results in obtaining glory, he says, as a result of that, stand firm, hold to the traditions that you were taught. As a result of these great truths, the Thessalonians were to stand firm, not be shaken. They were to hold on tightly to these teachings. The word traditions there, tradition is an ugly word for most of us, I would assume. In our culture, it's ugly. If things are not brand new, um, they have no place, generally speaking, in our culture. Um, We think we're much smarter than everyone else, and everything old is lame and outdated. But it shouldn't necessarily be the case that it's an ugly word. In fact, in Scripture, it's used in two ways. Uh, it, it can be an ugly thing and a bad thing. So, for example, in Matthew 15, 3, Jesus uses it as he asks the Pharisees. He says, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? And then a bit later, he says, so for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. So this is clearly a bad tradition. This is a tradition a set of teachings uh, that are in conflict with the Word of God. They're in opposition to the Word of God. They're setting aside the Word of God in order to hold on to 
traditions of men. And that's obviously a bad thing. Elsewhere in Matthew, it's called the tradition of the elders. Mark calls it the traditions of men. Galatians 1.14, Paul also calls this Pharisaic tradition the uh, tradition of my fathers and uses it in a negative term. It was a tradition that was passed down, but it was in opposition ultimately to the word of God. So that was a bad tradition. However, this word is also used positively in reference to apostolic instruction that was passed down to the churches. And this would be a good use of the word tradition, good traditions. So, for example, in, in 1 Corinthians eleven twelve, Paul says, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. So they're commended for, uh, for maintaining these traditions. Uh, and then here in 2 Thessalonians 2, and then we'll see it again in, in chapter 3, verse 6. Uh, again, it's used in reference to the teachings that Paul gave them. So this apostolic tradition comes from Christ's authoritative spokesman. The apostles, they were uniquely gifted and given to the church as authoritative teachers. And their instruction is in line with the Word of God. In fact, it is the Word of God. It's been preserved for us in the New Testament. We're told in Ephesians 2:20 that the apostles are make up uh, the apostles and prophets make up the foundation of the church, so they play a foundational role. They were uniquely authoritative in their instruction, and it's been preserved for us in the New Testament. And if Paul goes on to say that he delivered this instruction to them through spoken word and through letter. And his instruction to them now, as he's writing 2 Thessalonians, is to stand firm in it and to hold fast to it. So this is in contrast to verse 2, if you back up to verse 2, where the Thessalonians were being thrown off course by other teaching that was not from him. And if you'll recall, as we talked about it then, I submit to you that I don't think Paul knew exactly where the teaching was come from. Uh, was coming from. It could have been either a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from him uh, or a prophecy. Uh, a spirit, yeah, a, a prophecy. He's not exactly sure. Wherever it comes from, he goes on to say it's wrong. In contrast to that false teaching that's not ultimately from him, now he's telling them, stand firm to the tradition that you were taught, whether it was when I was there speaking to you or in the letters that were clearly from me. And just to note... Um, common in Paul's letters at the end of 2 Thessalonians, uh, verse 17 of chapter 3, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. So he's, again, signing off basically in his own, uh, in his own handwriting instead of whoever it was he had uh, writing a letter on his behalf. And so his point is, you cling to the things that I taught you, these apostolic traditions you've been given, and you reject these other things you've been told. And so I think in particular, what Paul is thinking of, you know, what he has in mind is the particular issue that the Thessalonians are, are dealing with here that he's addressing is their view of the end times. And their view that the day of the Lord has already come. And he's correcting them. Don't, li not, don't listen to these false teachings on this. 
Hold fast to the tradition I gave you, the teachings I gave you about this. But I also think that this is more broad than just that. This applies not just to his teaching on the day of the Lord, but to all of his teaching. It's a general rule um, to hold fast to the tradition that they had received and not be easily moved off from that. And so these teachings would include theology, doctrine, uh, and his teachings about acceptable behavior. We're going to see that in chapter 3, verse 6, where he uses this word to talk about specifically the issue of work and what he taught them about that. And so again, apostolic tradition has been passed down to us and preserved for us in the scriptures, in the New Testament. And so we are to be those who hold fast to the scriptures, to what we've been taught in the Bible. We are to receive the truths of the scripture, the teachings of the scripture, and we are to hold tightly to them. Notice again, this is uh, uh, this command to stand firm and to hold fast to these teachings is a logical result of their salvation. Because you've been called, because you've received a salvation that results in eternal glory, stand firm in this. Hold fast to the word. Jude calls it the faith once for all delivered for the saints. He sets out to write a letter about something else and he says, now, no, it's necessary for me to defend the faith once for all delivered to the saints. He's defending apostolic doctrine, the truth of the gospel. And so our goal is to get at the faith once for all delivered to the saints and to hold fast to it. This doesn't mean we stop learning. There's always more to learn in Scripture. But it's mostly going deeper. And it's developing a fuller and more complete understanding of God, of salvation. So there might be things that are new to us as we learn and study. There will be things that are new to us. But it doesn't mean it's new. As though it's never existed before. So when we hear new things to us that we've not previously heard, it's, it's good. It's a good thing to have a healthy skepticism about it and then to be like the Bereans and to search the scriptures diligently to see if these things are so. This is a good thing. This is what we should do. Whether you hear it come out of my mouth or anybody else in this building or anyone online or anywhere else you might Hear somebody teaching the word of God. It is innovative teaching that throws people off course. This was true for the Thessalonians who were influenced by some other teaching. And it, was, it shook them up and it threw them off course and was alarming to them. Rather than listen to that, they were to stand firm and hold fast to the teachings that Paul had given them. Another side to this I would submit is that we need to come to the conclusion that there is such a thing as apostolic doctrine that is to be held tightly by us. Again, we talked about this last week, that there are many who are simply skeptical of doctrine and theology in general. It's a means of control. It's whatever the reasons are, the argumentation for it. Uh, we need to come to the place where we understand and are convinced that there is truth and true doctrine for us to know and to learn, and that it is for our good. 
and that it is something to cling to and to hold tightly to and to defend as well. We are to stand firm in biblical truth. So, let's be discerning. Test what you hear with the scriptures. Read your Bibles. This is a great way to do that. Know your Bible really well, as well as you possibly can. That's going to help you as you are discerning. Stand firm in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That which you discover to be true in the scriptures, hold firm to it until someone can teach you from scripture why it's wrong. Hold firm to the truth of scripture, the traditions that have been handed down to you. Finally, number four, take confidence in the Lord's salvation by bringing your needs to him in prayer. Bringing your needs to him in prayer. Now that sounds really obvious, but just hang, hang with me for a moment. Uh, read with me verse 16 and 17. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. So Paul ends this section here with a prayer. It's a wish prayer or a benediction expressing his desire for the Thessalonians. So it's something, again, he covered one of these in 1 Thessalonians 3 at the end of chapter 3, uh, 1 Thessalonians. Uh, it's, it's written to people, but it's really addressing God. And, uh, and so it's, it's, a, it's like a wish prayer. In this, Paul appeals to our Lord Jesus himself and God our Father, he says. So making his prayer to Jesus... And to the Father has, I think, obvious significance for Christology, for our understanding of Jesus Christ and who he is. So the reason for that is you don't address a prayer to somebody who's not God. So this is significant. You know, uh, there's a lot of people will try to argue that a high Christology, that is a view that Jesus was in fact God, is a very late development, well after uh, the time of the apostles. But again, here we see it right here in 2 Thessalonians, and even back in 1 Thessalonians, he addresses the prayer to the Father and to the Son. And these are, remember, very early letters. These are some of the earliest New Testament documents we have. And so very early on, we see a very high view of Christ being displayed. It's not a late development. Notice also the Trinity in this passage. So if you'll recall from verses 13 and 14 we talked about last week, God the Father does the electing. Sanctification in verse 13 is brought by the Holy Spirit. And the glory we obtain is that of the sons, Jesus Christ. So salvation is ultimately a Trinitarian work of God. And, and Paul doesn't develop it um, in total here. He doesn't develop every role that each member of the Trinity plays. But we see bits of it, certainly, here. The Father elects. The Son is the Savior who secures salvation for the elect. And the Spirit applies the salvation to the elect. Paul goes on to focus on some of the work that the Father did. He says the Father uh, he is described as the one who, Paul says, loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. So given the context, 
I think the Father's love is probably a reference back to God's gracious act of election in verse 13. We know from Ephesians 1, for example, that this election is done out of love for those whom he saves. So uh, in Ephesians 1, it says, in love he predestined us. So that's likely what he means when he talks about he loved us. The Father also gives believers, says, eternal comfort and good hope. Eternal comfort and good hope. And I understand both of these to be referencing our eschatological hope, our end times hope. That is the hope we discussed earlier of obtaining the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the Father gives this, Paul says, through grace. Christian hope is that this life is not all there is. That's what sustains somebody like Jane Grey that I, we started the sermon with, who can march confidently to death with an eternal comfort and a good hope given by grace, knowing that there is much more beyond this. And then Paul expresses what his actual prayer for them is in verse 17. That the Son and the Father may, he says, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. So the Father has given eternal comfort or peace and joy to people, and eternal comfort, sorry. Uh, and yet, so there's an eternal comfort that awaits us, and yet, here's a prayer for a present experience of that comfort. So he desires for them, and he's praying for the Thessalonians, that they would have a deep sense of comfort, of peace, of joy, that comes from confidence in the Lord's salvation. So he prays for that comfort, and then he also prays that their hearts would be established in every good work and word. So not only does he desire comfort, but also strength. That's what the word established means. Their hearts would be established, that their hearts would be strengthened for every good work and word. So that's every good work and word is a reference, I think, a general reference to the good deeds that believers are called to. So you think, if you think of all the imperatives, all the commands that Paul has given the Thessalonians back in the, uh, the first letter that we went through, and others that he would have given them when he was with them that we don't have in Scripture, uh, all of these things are good works. And words. They require works and words to be faithful in these things. And he's praying that they would be strengthened to be able to do these things. And so here we have, at the end of a section, addressing the Thessalonians' confusion about the end times. We have here a prayer at the end for them to be comforted and to be strengthened to press on in good works. And I've said that verses 13 through 17 focus attention on the work of God as a means of encouragement. His election, his calling, his sanctifying, his glory that is going to be given to us by grace. Focus on his work in order for comfort. And then in 16 and 17, the emphasis here, as he's praying, is still on God as Paul prays for them. That God would act on their behalf and work in them, comforting, strengthening them, helping them move forward. 
He prays for them because they're in desperate need of God's help for these things. Now, certainly Paul would want them uh, to make every effort to be obedient, to pursue good deeds and works. We've seen that. He calls them to that. But here, he's praying for them, that God would strengthen them for this task, and that he would provide that strength and provide comfort for them in this. They are a persecuted church, if you'll recall, and they've been shaken up now by this false teaching. And Paul prays for God to help them. Friends, we need prayer. We need to be people of prayer. Now, when it comes to pursuing holiness, good deeds that the Lord's called us to, the Bible calls us to action, calls us to pursue it with all our might, to fight, to be faithful in those things. But we are not called to pursue that in our own strength. This is not a fleshly work where we just have to suck it up and do it all ourselves. That we, would not, that we would think that way and not pray for help is a sure sign that we think way too highly of ourselves. We are so incredibly needy. We depend on the Lord for our very breath. So in, in this work of pursuing godliness, we need the Lord's help in this. We need Him to strengthen us, to help us with this. We need changes in our hearts. That we would desire godliness above all things. That we would truly despise our sin. That we would view the world around us through an eternal lens. That we would believe the scriptures and trust them. That we would not be easily rattled by whatever it is that shakes us. That causes us fear. We need help for this. We need God's help for this. We cannot possibly do it in our own strength. And we dare not and we should not try We are needy. We need Him to take the truth of the Word and stamp it on our hearts. That when troubled waters come, and they do and will come, that we might not be moved or shaken, but rather comforted, strengthened, encouraged, that we would be confident in the Lord and in His salvation. We need to be people who recognize our great need for God for his comfort, for his strength, that we might press forward in faithfulness. Prayer is our great privilege as his people. We get to come to our Heavenly Father confidently in the righteousness of Christ. Boldly, Hebrews says, tells us, commands us to come boldly and confidently. We get to do that. It's our, it's our right and our privilege to be able to come and ask for help that we might find, receive Mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. We need to be those who prevail or persevere in prayer. I think we tend to pray for something once. And if we don't see improvement, we can sometimes throw our hands up. I prayed about it. I don't know what else to do. And we get discouraged when that happens. But Jesus told us a parable to correct this thinking. Some parables are very difficult to understand. 
And then, one, and then some of them, the, the point of them is given to us. And this is wonderful when this happens. And this happens in Luke 18, 1. He gives a parable, Jesus does, of the persistent widow who begs and begs and harasses a judge to give her justice till finally he does. And the lesson we're to draw from it, we're told at the start of the parable, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. That implies that sometimes we don't get an answer right away. That sometimes, for reasons known only to God, he delays. And we don't know why, but we're told to continue to come to him, to continue to bring our prayers to him. To not lose heart. To come in the name of Jesus, confident he hears. To come boldly in Christ's name, because we're told to do that. And we come again to our Father, though we have not yet received an answer, though we don't see improvement in the situation, and we ask for help. And we cry out to him for help, and we don't stop. And we continue to do that. And that is the testimony that Scripture bears witness to. You've read the Psalms. You know this. Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? This is David writing. A godly man. And yet he knows that feeling. He knows that sense. He has been crying out. There's nothing seemingly, nothing happening. And he continues to cry out. And if you let the Psalms lead you and teach you, how to pray and how to call out to God, you'll also find that while they regularly express that, where are you, they're also expressing confidence that the Lord has been good to me and he will be good to me. And so we need to continue to cry out, call for help, and, and, and cling to the truth of the gospel that the Lord has not abandoned us, that the salvation we've been granted is a salvation to obtain eternal glory. And we cling with all our might to that, and we continue to call out to our Heavenly Father for strength, for comfort, for whatever it is that we might need. And so let us be those who are in prayer for ourselves and for one another. If you're having a great day, someone else needs your prayers. Someone else in this room needs your prayers. Let's not be embarrassed to ask for prayer. It's not an, it's not an embarrassment. It shouldn't be embarrassing to say to, to admit that the Lord seems distant in this time and I really, really need help. If David can feel that, you are permitted to feel that. We are allowed to feel that. And we need prayers. And we need the prayers of one another for each other. So let us be praying for each other. If you don't know of someone off the top of your head, just call out to the Lord on behalf of Lord, whoever it is in our church that needs this right now, comfort them and help them. If prayer's not easy for you, and it's probably not, because I don't know anyone who says it's easy for me. So, if it's not easy for you, begin by, you can confess that to the Lord. There's various reasons for this. We don't know what to say. We forget. We run out of time. Whatever. We don't make time. Perhaps um, confess this to the Lord. And one of your first prayers then can be praying for a heart of prayer. That you would desire to pray more. Again, we need the Lord's help to even approach him well. So pray for that. Use the scriptures to help you pray. 
Again, make psalms your prayers. Read a psalm and then pray. Begin to pray that back to the Lord. Whatever you might read, whatever the topic is of wherever you're reading that day, you can use that to pray those things. You could go home tonight and you could pray the verses we're covering right now. You could pray for comfort, for strength to press forward in good deeds, every good work and word. I also suggest don't worry about what you sound like. Uh, as you think of praying, whether it's by yourself or whether you're with your spouse or friends or it's prayer meeting or wherever it might be, who cares what you sound like? It, just start to express yourself to the Lord. You don't need to sound great. Some people might sound really good when they pray. That's fine. That's great. I know people like that, that they pray and it's amazing. And then you kind of spit things out of your mouth and feel small. But that's not the issue. That's not the point. And so let's not be proud. We should not be too proud to pray. We should be those who pray. Because we need it. And your brothers and sisters need it. So whatever it takes, spend time in prayer. Write them down if you need. Whatever it is that will help you focus. I also encourage you to make it a priority to be here when we have prayer meetings. So once a month, basically every fourth Sunday, we have um, uh, we suspended our teaching series and we're doing just an evening of prayer. And if at all possible, be here for that. Um, find out the needs of those around you at those meetings. If you can't be here, go on the private Facebook page and tell us your, uh, your request. Text somebody uh, and we'll pray for you. Again, none of us are above this. We need the Lord's help. So prayer is one of the ways that we take confidence in the Lord and in his salvation. He is the one we need. Prior to her death, Lady Jane Grey had given instructions for her Bible to be given to her sister. Her sister's name was Catherine. Inside, she wrote this to her sister. Rejoice in Christ as I do. Follow the steps of your master, Christ, and take up your cross. Lay your sins on his back and always embrace him. And, as touching my death, rejoice as I do, good sister, that I shall be delivered of this corruption and put on incorruption. For I am assured that I, having lost my mortal life, shall win an immortal life. May God grant us such confidence in the Lord's gracious salvation that we might remain steadfast, courageous, and comforted regardless of whatever trials we face. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace, for your salvation. We have nothing else to offer you. We simply say thank you. God, we are wretched people who deserve your condemnation, and yet you've made a way through Jesus Christ. God, and if anyone in this room is uncertain if they are truly born again, God, I pray that you would make them certain, that you would work in them and draw them to yourself. Help them to see the glory of Jesus Christ and to believe it and to know their only hope is Christ. Lord, for all here who are trusting and believing in Jesus, God, would you comfort us and strengthen us for every good work and word.
God, we so desperately need you in so many ways. Would you come and help us, your needy people? Make us those who are confident in your salvation. Make us those who are burdened to share this salvation with the lost. And God, we cannot make anyone believe. And so we declare together our need for you to work, our need for you to save people. So I pray you would bear fruit in our what feels like meager efforts to share the gospel with people. Give us courage to speak. Give us confidence that we might proclaim the gospel. And God, would you do a work even in this city? And would you draw people to yourself and make your name known that you might receive the glory that you do and that we, your people, might be joyful in you? God, strengthen us all in whatever trial we're facing. We ask this together in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.